Please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? So said General George Washington, at least according to Lin-Manuel Miranda, the writer of Hamilton, the Broadway musical going on its seventh year run in New York City. When it comes to huge historical figures like those that are larger than life, uh, those who may have risen to power during the founding of a nation, we often admire them and we honor them. And so here's the point I want to begin with today about that topic. The greatest measurement of an individual's maturity is how they handle authority. The greatest measurement of an individual's maturity is how they handle authority. In other words, when you take on a position of leadership or influence or power, what you do with that is very important. If a leader will actually sacrifice for those underneath of them, if they will be a true servant-minded leader and give for the sake of others, that says a whole lot about that person's maturity, doesn't it? That's what's really inspiring, isn't it? If you think about the leaders that you admire in your life, I bet that's what you saw in them. But few things, on the other hand, are more disturbing than when you see a leader who leverages their position or influence for their own benefit. Few things are more disturbing than when you see a leader who neglects the people that follow them and take care only of themselves. That, ladies and gentlemen, does great damage. So if you're here today, whether you're a parent or you're a leader or you're a coach or you're a teacher or you lead anything at all in this world, this message is for you. Because how we respond in that moment when we may realize I'm the most influential person in this room, whether that's the boardroom or the classroom or maybe even the living room, what we do in that moment says a lot about our own maturity. Now maybe you're here today and you think, when I get there, that's the kind of leader that I'm going to be. But none of us really know which lever we will pull. None of us really know which button we will push till we get that position. None of us really know until somebody hands us the keys. None of us really know until somebody actually gives us the position, or in David's case, until he actually wears the crown. That's where we pick up our story today in our sermon series through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We've made it to 2nd Samuel today, and the message is just simply entitled Glory Days, with a nod to that great philosopher from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen. We see here the beginning of the reign of King David, and we will learn three key lessons about mature godly leadership in this text and how they handle authority. First, we will see that godly leaders submit to God's rulership. Second, we will see that godly leaders respect God's holiness. And then third, we will see that godly leaders rejoice in God's presence. Before we look at that, let's pray. God, we pause just for a moment. Thank you for preserving this amazing text, this amazing story. Help the words to leap off our page and enter into our lives in such that we can put them into practice tomorrow morning, this week when we're going about school or work or in our families. Help us, God, to honor you with our lives in this important and particular way. What we know not now, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? For the glory of your beautiful name, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. I'm going to be speaking about 2 Samuel chapter 6, 
which means I want to summarize 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 5 in five minutes or less. So my time starts now. Chapter 1, King Saul and his son Jonathan have both tragically died. Remember that from last week? They died on the battlefield. Afterward, David is devastated about this. He mourns about this. And chapter 1 is a song that he writes of lament, of grief, called the Song of the Bow. You'll recall that Jonathan is David's best friend. And so this is a devastating chapter. Chapter 2, now after Saul is gone, the path toward the throne is open, and David is about to fulfill his destiny. Take a look at one verse from chapter 2 on the screen. Verse 4 says, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Finally, after about eight years of being on the run, David is king. But at this point, he's only king over the south, only over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. In the north, there's a son of Saul that has taken the throne there. His name is Ishbosheth, and he's still king over the north. But David is patient. He knows that God has chosen him. He knows that God has a plan. God anointed him, and he knows that it's only a matter of time till God makes due on his promises, and he never rushes things. He knows it has to be God's will, God's way, God's timing. And so David is waiting upon the Lord. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And you'll see in chapters 3 and then 4 and then 5 that David is on a roll. David is the Atlanta Braves in the fall of 2022 going on a playoff run. David is taking care of business that's been unfinished. Saul didn't demolish the Amalekites. David takes them out. Then David goes after the Philistines. He takes them out. Then David takes Jerusalem. He conquers that city. And in chapter 4, some of David's men rise up and they actually go after Ishbosheth. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 7. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David. Side note, have you noticed how often people get decapitated in the current sermon series that we are going through? <laughs> this was the ancient version of Apple Face ID. In order to prove that someone was dead, you had to bring their head. And so they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David to say, we got him, here he is. And then after seven and a half years of only reigning over Judah, finally, now, the other 11 tribes come together and they declare that David is their king. This is a high point in the book. This is a magnificent sense of unity, a crucial moment. This is amazing. Chapter 5 begins like this. It says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you, David, will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Wow. Verse 9, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. That's Jerusalem. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. David at this point is wildly popular. He's a brilliant leader. He's a brilliant organizer. He's a brilliant planner. He's a mighty man over a mighty empire. This is David at his absolute best. These are the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. Now, why is David so successful? It's because David is so wise. No, 
Is it because David is so strong? No. It says it is because the Lord God was with him. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Right? Here's the principle that we learn from this little summary. The Lord accomplishes his purpose through those who promote his kingdom agenda. That was true back then in David's day. That was a political issue, a military issue. He, he was king over a nation. But that is also true today. Though we are not obviously conquering physically the, the nations of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us a commission too, and we are to spread his love and to spread his gospel in our own sphere of influence. And God, just like he was with David, has promised us, if you will make disciples, I will be with you unto the end of the age. And so this is what we learned from chapters one through five. All right, how did I do on the five minutes? Pretty good? Chapter six is where we are for today. We're starting with verse one. If you're ready for the text, say amen. Amen. Okay, David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, whoever that is, which was on the hill. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Notice, this is a gigantic occasion. 30,000 men. And David is organizing this enormous processional and celebration. For this trip, it would have been about eight miles. And he says, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant eight miles into Jerusalem. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant was? Moses had given very specific instructions in the book of Exodus on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. It was the most sacred vessel in the tabernacle. It was supposed to dwell inside of this tent and signify the presence of God with his people, and the Ark was the throne of God. You'll notice around the outside edge of the ark in this picture on the screen is a crown-like structure symbolizing that Yahweh, the Lord, is king. The ark is the throne of God. In the past, the ark was always with them. The ark was with them when they crossed over the waters of the Jordan River. The ark was with them when they conquered the city of Jericho. But at this point in Israel's history, the ark has entered a season of dormancy, You can mark down 1 Chronicles 13, 3, which says, Israel did not seek the ark in the days of Saul, which was tragic. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, we didn't cover this section, but there's a story, a famous story about the ark. There's a priest, his name's Eli, he's got two sons that are wicked, and they authorized the ark to go into battle with the Israelites against the Philistines, not because God told them to do that, they were using the ark as kind of a lucky rabbit's foot to see if that would help them be victorious. But the ark was captured by the Philistines in that battle. While the ark was in Philistine territory, it created all kinds of havoc when it was there. A plague breaks out, and the people in the Philistine territory are like, let's send this thing back. We don't need this. A plague broke out here. People had boils. It was just creating chaos. So what they do is they put the ark on a cart, and they take two oxen, and they just send it away, and these two, it says two sons of milk cows, they, they actually take the ark from the land of the Philistines all the way back to Israel exactly where it's supposed to go, which is a miracle, first of all, with no human direction. But second of all, in the text, it's meant to provide for us a contrast as those two sons of those two milk cows have more spiritual sense and more spiritual direction than the sons of Eli. 
The sons of Eli don't have the sense of a cow. That's the point that the author is making there. And so the ark makes it back, but when it makes it back, it kind of stays on the periphery, kind of stays on the outside edge, kind of stays on the margins of Israel in the, in the days of Saul. But David wants to change that. David wants to bring it to the middle. David wants to bring it to the center. David wants to bring it to the very core of everything that his kingdom is all about. And so that's what we read about. In fact, this, this very processional here, this processional is recorded uh, musically and in song form in Psalm 24. Maybe you've heard this psalm before, but you were unclear about the historical significance. This is what this psalm is about. The psalm that says, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This psalm is about the ark coming into the city, the ark coming through the gates of Jerusalem, the Lord taking up his throne in the middle of his people, the king of glory. The word glory there means weightiness or or heaviness. That's what God is. He's a weighty and heavy presence. He's the most heavy presence in our lives. So what is David doing? He wants to make the city of Jerusalem, not just the political center, not just the military center, but the religious and spiritual center of God's people. He wants everyone to understand this with this symbol. And so to to figure out how to make this happen, he says, I know what we're going to do. I'm going to bring the ark in, symbolizing that it's God who's really the king. And so David is going to say this, I am a king, but I am not the king. David is like the vice president. David is like the vice regent. It's God, Yahweh God, who's really the king over Israel. David knew what we know. We need a king. And it is the Lord, strong and mighty. A couple days ago, I was watching TV, and this commercial for Burger King came on. And they got this new jingle. Maybe you've heard this very annoying commercial. (laughs) Whopper, 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 junior double, triple whopper, impossible bacon whopper at BK. Have it your way. You rule. That's the commercial. You rule. And I saw that, and I'm like, this is the subtle message of secularism everywhere. Everywhere we are looking, society is telling us, you rule. David knows, no, I don't. The Bible teaches instead, the very first principle of our message today, is that godly leaders submit to God's rulership. Do you recognize that as a reality in your life? Is God not just your savior, not just your insurance policy, but is God your king Is God the one who's really sitting on this throne in your heart? Do you allow him to provide the direction in your lives? See, often what happens is we allow something or someone else to rule over us, don't we? Whether it's our career aspirations or money or the approval of others or our own lustful desires, we let other things besides God take rulership over our lives. Bob Dylan used to say it well. You got to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. So brothers and sisters, we need to, like David today, remember that our lives work much better when we recognize and submit to God's rulership, which leads us to movement two. Godly leaders do not only submit to God's rulership, godly leaders also respect God's holiness. Back to our text, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 continues. When they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, 
because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What in the world is going on? He died? This is shocking. A couple of weeks ago, my kids came home from school, and they said, Dad, it was crazy. We had this assembly at school today, and this kid fainted. He fainted, and all these chairs got knocked over, and everybody was screaming and shrieking, and there was total panic and, and chaos for a brief moment there during the assembly. It was very jarring to them at school. Imagine that, but times a thousand times more shocking and disturbing. Just picture the scene here. There's a gigantic parade, 30,000 people. Everybody's celebrating. Maybe even Uzzah himself is singing God's praises as he goes. And then out of nowhere, whether it's a heart attack or a stroke, we don't know. But he's struck dead. People are shrieking. People are screaming. People are backing away. Maybe someone's calling for help. So what happened here is this man Uzzah was put in charge of the ark. And they put the ark on an ox cart. And what happened is one of the oxen stumbled and the Ark of the Covenant began to teeter a little bit. And when it looked like this holy vessel of God was about to fall onto the ground and be desecrated, that's when Uzzah saw that it was about to fall, put out his hand to steady the Ark almost instinctively to make sure that the throne of God did not slide off into the mud and then the heavens opened at that moment, and, and God himself said, Thank you, Uzzah. No. God strikes him dead? This is what people hate about the Bible. People read this stuff, and they go, How can I believe in a God like this? How am I supposed? This is so harsh. How can I put my trust, put my faith? If God acts like this, then I want no part of him. If that's you, if you're skeptical about God and particularly the God of the Bible, I just want you to think about a question. Why would we ever invent a God like this? If God is an invention, why would we tell the story this way? You wouldn't invent a God like this, not if you want to win friends and influence people, right? This God is not very marketable. Maybe we need to look a little deeper. Maybe we're superficial in our understanding. Maybe there's some things that we don't know. So here's a little background. First of all, Moses was told by God how to construct the ark. He said, put brackets on the four corners, these four rings, so that you can put poles through the ark so that you can carry it in that way so that it's never to be moved in, in any other way except for carried on the shoulder. Never by a cart. You should never put it on a cart. And secondly, notice God had told them it's supposed to be covered with goat skins when it was being transported. Third, God said, I only want the family of Levi to move my ark. And specifically, one particular family of Levi, the Kohathites, were put in charge of transporting the ark. They're not involved here whatsoever. And fourth, you are never, ever, 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 ever allowed to touch it. Take a look at Numbers chapter 4. 
It says, after Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. God had given them these instructions in detail earlier. But you'll notice here in our text in 2 Samuel, they broke literally every single rule. Number one, they did not give this job to the Levites. There's no indication in the text that Uzzah was a Kohathite. Number two, they put it on a cart. You were never supposed to put this on a cart. In, in fact, what they're doing, they're copying the Philistines. The Philistines were the ones who put it on a cart. Here's the people of God copying the unbelieving people. Third, there was no covering that they put over top of the ark. And then fourth, he touched it. This is why he's judged by God. Now, here's the problem. During this time in Israelite history, God's people had drifted away from him so, 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 so far. You'll remember, Pastor Bob gave a great sermon last week, and he talked about how the king of Israel was looking for guidance, and he went to a witch. Like, that's where we are. That's how far, the king, that's how far the people of God have slid away from God and his rules. And God had very specific reasons for giving his people his law. All of these rules are about something. All of these rules were purposeful. God doesn't waste words. God had been giving his people a message. And it's this one message that he kept, keeps giving them over and over and over and over. Here's the message. Your sin is serious. Your sin is serious. That's the message behind the law. Your sin separates you from me, God says. We cannot coexist. Your sin and my holiness do not work together. It's like oil and water. There's like a chasm between you and me. Your sins have created an incredible problem. Something has to happen to deal with your sin. And so here's the issue with Uzzah. He is refusing to come to God on God's terms. So when Uzzah performed this duty, he was not very thoughtful. He was not paying attention. He was not really thinking about it. And that's the problem. Intentions aren't good enough. It's like when someone's texting while they're driving and they get into a huge accident. It doesn't matter that their intentions were good in that moment. Just like that, Uzzah's intentions are not the issue. When Uzzah didn't worry about being a Levite, when Uzzah didn't worry about covering this ark, when Uzzah didn't worry about putting it on a cart or not putting it on a a cart, he rejected God's most fundamental revelation. Your sin is serious. He would have never put out his hand if he realized that. There's an old saying, right? Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That's Uzzah. Some people say, well, Wasn't his heart in the right place? Didn't he mean well? And for the answer to that question, I will be forever indebted to the late R.C. Sproul, who addressed this. Let me bring him up to the witness stand. Sproul says this, the presumption of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would have desecrated the throne of God. The earth was doing exactly what God created it to do. When it's dry, it's dirt. When it's wet, it's mud. 
dirt was functioning exactly how God created it to function. But it was the hand of man that God said, I do not want that on my throne. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God, and God killed him. And here, God is shocking his people with the depth of their disloyalty and calling them back to himself to come back to his law and serve him and him alone. Theologian Hans Kuhn says, the question is not why in the Bible, when we sometimes hear about these swift and sudden acts of justice, like this passage, Hophni and Phinehas, Ananias and Sapphira, it only happens a few times in the whole Bible. The question is not why or how God could ever put someone to death who sins against him. Rather, Kuhn says, the question is why God treats the vast majority of sinners with such mercy most of the time. Because my hands are the same as Uzzah's hands, and yet God treats me with mercy every day. Maybe I'm asking the wrong question. His mercy and his kindness, friends, are there to give us time to repent, but rather than repenting, I am often exploiting his mercy. We exploit God's mercy. We become so accustomed to God's grace that if we don't get it, we're incensed that God has not given us more mercy when mercy is, by definition, voluntary, right? God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But this is who I am. This is who we are. We presume. We, We demand, and we're angry when we don't receive his mercy. We might sing the song Amazing Grace, but the truth is I am no longer amazed by God's grace. I expect God's grace as if it's something that I'm entitled to. But friends, if you think you're entitled to grace, you're thinking about something, but you're not thinking about grace. This is Uzzah's problem. He doesn't think he's that bad. And isn't this where we are today? We need to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 139 and say, search me, O God. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that he will lift us up. Now this attribute of God, the holiness of God, may turn you off and it may perhaps push you in another direction. But my question for you in that moment is where else will you go? In the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes an interesting account in the book, The Silver Chair. There's a young girl in that story named Jill. Jill enters into the strange woods, and she's scared, and she's very thirsty, and she's walking around in search of water. And then she finds a stream. But she stops dead in her tracks when Aslan the lion is nearby, and she hears this loud and booming voice come out of nowhere. If you're thirsty, you may drink. The text says she looks around here and there, wondering who had spoken, and then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, you may drink. The text says it was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened when she heard it than she had been before. In fact, she became frightened in a whole different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Then Jill said, would you mind going away while I do? 
The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Hmm. Will you promise not to do anything to me while I drink? I make no promise, said the lion. Well, I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, the lion said. Oh, dear, Jill said, coming another step further. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And so it is with a holy God who revealed his wrath in the death of Uzzah and through his son, Jesus Christ. We, friends, must humble ourselves in God's sight and come to him in the only way that he has offered through the blood of the cross. There is no other stream. There is no other way. Listen to this, friends. Let me try to make a case. You don't want a God who will compromise on his holiness. You don't want that. You don't want a God who will allow you or his people to do whatever they want to do. No. You want a God who is holy. A God who will say, no, Dave, I will not let you do that. I love you too much. And so God's commitment to his own holiness is in itself a grace. There's a children's book called No David. I think this book was written for me. (laughs) It's all about this little boy who's constantly getting into trouble and constantly being told, no David, you too. No David, no David, every single page. And then finally the last page is, yes David, I love you. It's a story about a little boy who's given limits, but always out of love. This is what I need from God. This is what you need from God. I can be so selfish. I can be so proud. I can be so unkind. I need to be recalibrated by a holy God. And this is why God's people must respect God's holiness. So the incident occurs with Uzzah, and the text goes on. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8 says this. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, breaks out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Notice a few things about these verses. First, notice David is angry. Angry at what? Angry at who? Why is he angry? Is he angry at God? Maybe. Is he angry at the embarrassment of his whole big procession totally collapsing and falling apart? Maybe. Or maybe he's angry at himself. This was his idea. Deuteronomy 17 says the king needs to be so familiar with God's law that they're always to keep a copy of it with them. But David apparently is totally unfamiliar with this, and David makes a great mistake, and because of his negligence, someone dies. Notice also, secondly, it says David is afraid. David is fearful. David is despondent. He asks this question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Isn't that a good question? How is this ever going to work out? How? It reminds me of a similar question that he writes in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? 
Isn't that a good question? What is the answer to that question? Maybe the answer is no one. There's got to be a solution to this. What is the solution to all this? There has to be a solution. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a substitute. This is what David begins to realize. And when he does that, he tries this entire parade a second time. But this time, I want you to notice, it goes very, very differently. Take a look at verse 11. It says, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The blessing of God comes because of the presence of God. Verse 12, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Pause there for a second and notice a few things. Notice, first of all, there's no cart. They're carrying this thing this time, right? Secondly, I want you to notice there's a sacrifice of a bull and a calf. What is that? That's called a burnt offering. What's going on here? is that now David understands. He knows now that for him to be forgiven of his sin, for all of us to be forgiven of our sin, for us to live, there has to be the sacrifice of another. For me, David says, to be in the presence of God, someone has to die in my place. Friends, these sacrifices here are a shadow. These sacrifices here point us forward toward the work of our Lord Jesus one day, his sacrifice on the cross who came to die in our place for our sins. This is how we are made righteous before God too. This is how we can stand in the holy place of God. This is how the ark of God can come to us. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, is this what you understand about how you can be made right with God? See, here at our church, we believe that what the Bible says is true that there is a thing called sin, and we believe in God's justice and even God's wrath. We don't say it because we like to write the story this way. We say it because it's what God has revealed in his inerrant word, and it's true. And so we want to always tell you the truth, that you have lived in such a way that you deserve not God's applause, but God's condemnation. And Maybe you've never had a friend in your life who loved you enough to tell you that, but it's the truth. But God, in his amazing love, has chosen not to treat us as our sins deserve, but rather has sent his one and only son to take our place for our sins and die on the cross as a substitute for us. And then God raised him victoriously on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns today in heaven and is available for all who trust in him. That's the good news. If you want to know more about the Lord Jesus, I would love to talk with you. Don't leave today without talking with me. And so David understands this, and he makes a sacrifice, and then the ark is finally brought into Jerusalem, and that leads us to movement three. Godly leaders not only submit to God's rulership, and they not only respect God's holiness, but third, godly leaders rejoice in God's presence. Here's what happens. 14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Here's a scene of great joy. David is elated. David is so happy that he's dancing. Now, let me just say this I don't dance. 
I am that guy at the wedding, at the table, watching you do the electric slide. I watch you do the cha-cha, I watch you do the cotton-eyed Joe, and I will not get up out of my chair. That's me. And that's what I love about this scene. David doesn't care what he looks like. He is loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hebrew, that's muchness. He's loving God with everything he has, and the presence of God is here, and it's overwhelming to him. God is living and dwelling with his people, and this is cause for great celebration in the city of Jerusalem. And so what do we learn here? We learn that the Lord's willingness to dwell amongst his people is cause to celebrate. We are here to worship. We are here to sing praise. Our God is worthy of our worship. You know, it's funny. I see sports fans cheer like crazy when their team gets a touchdown today. I watch New York Yankees fans go ballistic when Aaron Judge hits 62. I see people cry at Broadway plays. Nobody laughs at them. But if people get a little excited about God, right away we're like fanatics, crazy people, fundamentalists, weird, extremists. David doesn't care. David knows our God is worthy of worship. God has come to dwell with his people in Jerusalem. Let's celebrate. Now, I could end the sermon right here. This would be a great place to stop. But the text doesn't stop here. Not everybody's as happy as David is. So the text goes on in verse 16. It says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David... Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him And said this, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now what's going on here? First of all, you may remember that Michal is the daughter of King Saul. It's not totally clear that Michal actually fears the Lord whatsoever. There's an idol in her household. That's found in 1 Samuel chapter 19. But nonetheless, she is disgusted by this whole scene. For her taste, it's lacking in dignity. Michal sees this behavior, and she rebukes David because she thinks, David, this is beneath you. This is not the behavior befitting of a king. You're the king. You're making a fool out of yourself. And you're making a fool out of our family too, by the way, David, and she despises him. Which means she has contempt, which means she doesn't think this is worthy behavior of someone who's on the throne. Now take a look at David's response. 21, David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone. We're not here to please you, Michal. You know, when somebody leaves the church and they say, I don't really like the worship today, you know what I want to say sometimes? That's okay, we weren't worshiping you. (laughs) McCall's upset. David says, it was before the Lord I did this. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. 
And I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Now take a look at David's response here, because it's amazing. See, here's what David knows. He knows that his kingship is not about him. He knows the glory belongs to someone else. He says, listen, McCall, I'm not here because of something great about me. God's the one who chose me. I'm not the one who chose him. This was God's choice. That word choice there, it speaks of grace. This is God's grace. That's why I'm here. I'm not here today because you're King Saul's daughter. Is that what you think? God chose me and anointed me and put me here. Not you. I will exalt his name. I will give him glory. Ironically, the reason why these are David's glory days is because he's not concerned with his own glory. And it's a lesson for us all. But McCall does not understand that. See, what you may not know is McCall is David's first wife. That means it's her kids that are set to inherit the throne. She's the one whose kids should be next in line to be the next king. And so McCall is concerned about what's coming to her. McCall is concerned about what's owed her. And McCall doesn't understand grace. And that's why verse 23 tragically says this. And McCall, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Why? Because she sought her own glory. Instead, who gets to bear the line of the king? Fast forward a second. You know who it is, right? Bathsheba, the adulterous one. The one who understands her need of a savior. The one who understands grace. The one who will admit that she's undignified. Did you notice that term in the text? undignified. The word in the Hebrew means to be made low, to be modest, to be ignoble, to be cast down, to be unambitious or humble in spirit. This is the person that God chooses to work through. Isaiah 57 says, for thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of the contrite and lowly spirit. This is the gospel, friends. God saves his people not because they're dignified, not because they deserve it, but only because of his gracious choice. This is the upside-down nature of our God's kingdom. Why? So that he gets all the glory. But friends, can I just say to you with all honesty and with all due respect, if you cannot admit that you are undignified, if you cannot admit today that you have blown it, if you cannot admit that you have no hope apart from the sheer grace of God, then perhaps you are not undignified enough for David, and you are definitely not undignified enough for David's son. The good news of the gospel is that God loves those of us who will admit we are undignified. The good news is that God loves David, and the good news is that God loves you and that God loves me. And our God demonstrated this a thousand years later when the son of David came with all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. And he did not leverage that authority for himself. But the son of man came rather not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As the worship team comes, let me just draw attention to one final point in the text. 
This last scene in Jerusalem with the ark and the people of God and the king on the throne is supposed to point us forward. Think about it. Here's the presence of God. Here's the king of God. Here's the city of Jerusalem. There's a book in the Bible at the very end called Revelation, and it speaks about a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem where the fullness of God's presence will dwell, not through the Ark of the Covenant, but all of his fullness will dwell one day with his people there. The Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy, and the message of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation has been taking us there, friends. God keeps telling us, one day I will dwell with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. In the New Jerusalem, this is when the reality occurs. And this picture, this scene right here, is a partial fulfillment of that promise that we all hold on to one day. Can you just imagine the New Jerusalem? That place where God's people will be united together around God's throne, a place of great rejoicing, a place of great celebration, a place of great joy, a place where even Pastor Dave is dancing, a place where we will all sing hallelujah. Can you just imagine when we will all be there and worship and dance in the presence of God like David danced? This is our great hope. Our hope is in the new Jerusalem. Those will be glory days. Can we pray? Father, thank you for the incredible hope that we find in your word. Until we get there, Lord, would you help us to be a people who submit to your rulership, who respect your holiness, and who rejoice in your presence. But Lord, we are looking forward to those glory days to come. As children of God, we believe your word that that is our destiny, that one day we will surround your throne And we will give glory to you, the Lamb. Protect us and keep us faithful to you until that day. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.